So I'm going to start this morning a little differently than the way I've ever started before. I want to show you a picture. So I don't know if my picture is up there just yet. Um, I took this picture right outside of uh, our church at 6.58 a.m. on August 7th, 2021. So a year ago, walking into worship practice, this is a white gardenia. Gray planted it. And so I've kept it now on my phone for over a year, and I can't bring myself to delete the picture. Not because I think, you know, I'm a great photographer. Um, but one reason is I remember being struck by its beauty. It was the only flower on that whole plant. And I had, I had passed that plant so many times. But that morning, the way the sun hit that flower stopped me. And so it was beautiful simply because of what it is, the nature of it. Something so common, baptized in radiant and opulent splendor with the sun hitting it at the right time. And so it stopped me because of that. And I haven't been able to delete it because a couple weeks later, a Category 4 hurricane named Ida not only removed the flower, but removed the whole plant from the premises. It's probably in Hammond right now. And so the flower has stayed on my phone, not just because it was a thing of beauty, but because of the nature of how it was removed, uh, it, it stayed with me. And so why am I telling you this story about this white gardenia? And so this morning, we'll begin to look at the single most important moment of human history. And I hope the beauty of it slows you down. I hope you stop in your tracks, and you bask in its loveliness simply because of what it is. But I also want you to slow down and sit with it because of the nature of how Jesus was removed, how Jesus died, how our salvation was accomplished. Just as that white gardenia was ripped away in the midst of a hellish storm, Mark's gospel this morning presents a portrait of Jesus gasping for air, crying out in agony, being mocked in true darkness. And that was for us and our salvation. There's an old hymn that asks, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they pierced him in his side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. And so the goal this morning is to walk scene by scene through Jesus' last moments so that we will tremble, tremble, tremble. So with that being said, let's turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, raise up your hand and some wonderful gentlemen will bring you one. At this time, uh, little ones can be dismissed to their class. Is that correct? No? Yep. All right. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. It'll be on the screen as well. God's word says this. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him, that is Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
And they, the Romans, crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. Verse 25. And it was the third hour, it's 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we have arrived to this moment that we've been working towards for well over a year. Lord, we have arrived at the top of Mount Everest. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace. God, we don't just want to read this story and it be so common. And it, and it doesn't stop us in our tracks. And so, Father, I pray for the grace of that. I pray that as we look at your holy word and we see what Jesus endured for us, that it would affect us. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And we would rejoice in such a salvation that was given on our behalf. And so, God, we pray against the enemy and any distractions. Lord, we pray that we, as Jesus set his face like flint to get here, that we would set our faces and our minds like flint to listen and to obey and to hear your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. So four scenes and then a few uh, applications from this passage. And so scene number one, scene number one, Simon of Cyrene carries Jesus' cross. Simon of Cyrene carries Jesus' cross. Look at verse 21 in your Bibles. And it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so the question is, who in the world is Simon of Cyrene? Uh, he has not appeared in the Gospels at all up until this point. And so the answer is, he's likely just a pilgrim coming to celebrate the Passover festival in Jerusalem. And so there, there could have been as, million, as many as one million people uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, and he is legally required, or the word is compelled, to do what the Roman authorities require him to do. And in this case, what is he required to do? He's got to carry the cross. And we know John's gospel says Jesus carried his cross. And so it's likely the case that Jesus started and then he couldn't finish. And so we don't know who Simon is, um, but we have a little bit of a clue in the rest of the New Testament. And so Mark's gospel was written for Christians in Rome. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 16, 13. He says, greet Rufus, it's a great baby name, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And so what's going on here, we don't know who Simon of Cyrene is. He's the father of Rufus and Alexander. But Mark's gospel would have known who he was. There's a guy in the church of Rome named Rufus who's a believer. And so it's likely the case 
Simon of Cyrene was so affected by this moment that he may have given his life to the Lord. And he may have carried that gospel to his family. And the Lord may have worked in the lives of his family. And so this is Mark's way of saying, hey readers, if you want to know more details about the crucifixion, go talk to Rufus and Alexander. Remember their father helped Jesus carry the cross when Jesus was taken to Calvary. The big question, though, is why is he carrying the cross for Jesus? And so there's a portion of the cross, the cross beam, the patibulum, that would weigh anywhere from 35 to 75 pounds. And Jesus likely couldn't finish carrying it because of fatigue, weakness. If you remember from Drew's sermon a few weeks ago, Jesus was scourged. Matthew 27, 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Being scourged could include being beat with rods, sticks, chains, metal chains, whips, and even what is known as a cat of nine tails, which is a whip with nine leather strips that often had glass, rocks, metal shards, and other sharp pieces of things attached to the end. Jesus was scourged before he was crucified. And with every swing of the whip, the flesh upon the back of the soon-to-be-crucified would be lacerated and even ripped to shreds. The goal of a Roman scourging was to so weaken the victim that their death would be hastened once they were nailed to the beam. And so Jesus cannot finish carrying the cross because he's had the life almost beaten out of him before he gets there. And just imagine, imagine what Simon is likely feeling in this moment. I mean, he's, he's likely just a guy from out of town. You know, he could have been involved in the public spectacle. Or he literally could have been trying to get away. Regardless, the Romans point to him and legally compel him to pick up that beam for that condemned man of sorrows. I mean, what a privilege. What an honor to just be in the wrong time or the wrong place in the right time. One writer said this, there's irony here. One of the profound paradoxes of Christianity is to be found in the fact that the one who was not able to carry his own cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. Jesus could not carry his own cross. So that's scene number one. It's probably the most positive scene here in the moment. Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross and possibly bringing his faith home. But scene number two. Look in your Bibles at verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And so they take him to Golgotha, a place called the skull. And it could be called this for two reasons. I should have got a picture of this, but the hill literally looks like a human skull. There's some holes and it looks like from afar you're looking at a, a precipice that looks like a human skull. And so they called it Golgotha, the place of a skull. Or... This was a place where the Romans liked to typically crucify people. And so there's a bunch of human skulls uh, that are there. Regardless, they take Jesus there. And look at what it says. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh. And he refuses it. 
And so there's so many questions in this passage. Why did they offer him this wine, this wine mixed with myrrh? And so some see this as an act of compassion, that the, the Romans are giving him wine mixed with myrrh to ease the pain. But that doesn't make sense because they literally almost killed him in the scourging. Some argue, though, that the wine mixed with myrrh would give the victim a spurt of energy, making them more aware of the pain and prolong the agony of the crucifixion. Or they're simply mocking him. Give the king of the Jews the finest of wines. He's deserving of it. And yet, it says he did not take it. I mean, in, in a moment where you think, man, give him something to drink. He's probably thirsty. Jesus refuses it. And so the question is, why does he refuse this offer? And the answer is, he has a different cup that he's drinking from. And he isn't going to cast that cup away until the very last drop has been swallowed. We saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is Mark chapter 14, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass. Mark 14, 36 says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And so there's two cups present at the crucifixion, and Jesus is destined to drink one of them until there's no drop left. One writer said, Jesus has been destined to drink the cup of God's wrath, not of men, and he wishes to remain fully conscious to the bitter end as he accepts his suffering. Jesus is not going to sleep on the cross as the disciples slept in Gethsemane. He means to feel every moment on the cross so deeply because he is fully aware what he is there to do. He is accomplishing our redemption. And there will be no shortcuts, no narcotic easings of pain, and no skimping out on the task. He wants to be aware of what's happening. So that's scene two. Gruesome stuff, if you haven't picked up on it. Scene three. They crucify him, and they rob him of his clothes. They crucify him and they rob him of his clothes. Verse 24, And the Romans crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And so the question here is, why did the Romans crucify people to begin with? I have two answers for you. The history teacher in me is coming out here. And so first, it was an agonizing and prolonged way of torture. The Romans were not the first ones to invent crucifixion, but they had perfected crucifixion. It is a gruesome, agonizing, and prolonged way of killing someone. And secondly, the public nature of crucifixions were meant to scare and deter and warn people. This is what will happen if you cross the Roman Empire. We won't just kill you. We will do it in the worst of ways. Um, there's, there's three Jewish revolts that, revolts that happened in the first century. In one of them, the Romans crucify thousands of Jews lining the roads to Jerusalem and even crucify them in different ways, mocking them. Crucifixion was a ghastly form of death. It's cruciatingly painful, prolonged, and socially degrading. And so this is 
the glory to which Jesus is submitting to. It gets worse. How did someone die by crucifixion? How did someone die by crucifixion? So this is, an, this is a quote from a medical journal, the Journal of American Medical Association. The title of the article is On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ from Dr. William Edwards. And I want you in this moment, close your eyes and try to imagine this ghastly scene. The victim's back would first be torn open by the scourging. Then the clotting blood would be ripped open again when the clothes were torn off the victim. When thrown on the ground to fix his hands to the crossbeam, the wounds would again be torn open and contaminated with dirt. Then, as he hung on the cross with each breath, the painful wounds on the back would scrape against the rough wood of the upright beam and would be further aggravated. Driving the nails through the wrist would sever the large median nerve, the stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and could result in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the excruciating pain, the major effect of crucifixion inhibited normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders would tend to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hinder exhalation. The lack of adequate breathing would result in severe muscle cramps which would hinder breathing even further. To get a good breath, one would have to push against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders. Pulling the weight of the body on the feet would produce searing pain, and flexing of the elbows would twist the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath would also painfully scrape the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath would be agonizing, exhausting, and lead to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon and burrow into the open wounds or the eyes, ears, and nose of the dying and helpless victim, and birds of prey would tear at these sights. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. You can open your eyes now. And so you could die from crucifixion in various ways. Acute shock from blood loss, Suffocation from being too exhausted to breathe. Extreme dehydration. Heart attack induced by the stress. And even heart rupture from congestive heart failure. All of that, in three words, they crucified him. You know, this is what Jesus submitted himself to. And look at the text. It says, while they're crucifying, they begin dividing his clothes. You know, they're, they're playing dice, casting lots, to see who gets what uh, portions of Jesus' clothing. And we know in Mark's gospel, Jesus' clothing has been important. Uh, in Mark chapter 6, verse 56, people are literally clamoring so they can touch the hem of Jesus' garment and be made well. Or in, at, at the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, his clothes became so radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so Mark has, has emphasized Jesus' clothing. And it says even earlier in verses 16 and 20, they strip him of his clothes, give him a purple or scarlet robe, and mock him. The whole point of this is cruelty. You know, they, they want, they're wanting something out of it. They want to walk away with something. But it's also meant to cruelly embarrass the victim that they're stripped publicly. 
And this moment, this is beautiful. It's fulfilling prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus is up there. Listen to Psalm 22, verses 16 and 19. It says this, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. You know, these, these soldiers just think, I want something financially out of this transaction. But in the moment, they're actually fulfilling divine prophecy that even the Messiah's clothes would be divvied up and have lots cast for them. So that's scene three this morning. The last scene. They mock him and jeer him. They mock him and jeer him. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And when they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the largest chunk here is people mocking Jesus. People jeering Jesus, making fun of Jesus in his moment of need. And they place an inscription above them. So often victims of crucifixions had to sort of wear placards that explain their crime. And in this instance, they're mocking him. Again, here's the king of the Jews. And they're not even just mocking Jesus. They're probably mocking the Jews as well. You know, they're laughing at the Jewish people. This is what we will do to your so-called kings and queens if they oppose mighty Caesar. We are the kings of the earth. The government is in charge, not you, Jewish people. And look on his right and his left. Um, there's two robbers or insurrectionists here. And they, these are probably Barabbas' buddies. Remember Barabbas being freed uh, a few weeks ago uh, before the crucifixion? Um, he likely had some, some people in his entourage that were not freed in that moment. And they're being crucified alongside Jesus on his right or his left. Um, and we've, we've seen in Mark's gospel people wanting to be on Jesus' right and left when he comes into his glory. Do you remember the story from Mark chapter 10 with John and James asking to be on his right or his left when he comes into his glory? And what does Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. Verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm being baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Which is wild. No, you're not. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It has been prepared for these two individuals to be crucified alongside Jesus. We don't even know their names. And yet there's one on the right and one on the left. And what's happening in this moment? But people are mocking Jesus. Again, fulfilling Scripture. Listen to Psalm 22, 7 and 8. Zach read it earlier. All who see me mock me. 
and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. So who's doing the mocking? Who are the culprits in this moment? First, it's those who are passing by. A crowd of people. And this is likely the same crowd of people earlier in the week that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So at the beginning, they're happy that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. And now they're saying, crucify him, destroy him, defeat him. Which should give us pause when it comes to crowds. We don't trust in human poles. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We don't count truth by counting noses. See how fickle and frail the crowd is here. But secondly, there's another group of people, the religious leaders. The very ones who should have known better. Who know the scriptures like the back of their hands. Who were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel are mocking and jeering and making fun of the Son of God. They missed it. They are so blinded by their religious zeal that they missed the day of God's visitation. And then the robbers and insurrections are mocking Jesus. The same two people that are suffering the same exact fate of Jesus are mocking Jesus for being crucified. (laughs) It's like not being able to read the moment. Um, They're they're lacking self-awareness here. But even to them, even to the crucified gentleman on the right and the left, this cannot be what God is doing. This cannot be the plan of God. This cannot be how the Messiah would come. And look at what they say. This is the last part of this section. Verse 29. 29. Aha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus said in John 2 that he would indeed destroy the temple. But it would be the temple of his body. And on three days, raise it up from the ground. So they they misunderstand what's happening here. Look at verse 31. They say, he saved others, yet he cannot save himself. And they get the first part true. I mean, they're factually correct. Jesus did miraculous things. He saved others. We've seen that in Mark's gospel. But they were wrong on the second end. Jesus could have saved himself. He could have at any moment come down from the cross. But to do so would damn us. It's not his nails that held him there. It was love. It was the desire to accomplish salvation. It was the resolve to submit to the Father that held him there. One writer said, were he to save himself, he could not save others from something more deadly than storms and sickness. It is precisely by hanging up there on the cross until it is finished that we can be saved to the uttermost. He could indeed save himself, but he refused. And the last thing, verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so they're asking for a religious sign. They want a miracle. It would be miraculous if that, in that moment Jesus came down from the cross. But imagine the wonder of wonders had he done that. Don't misunderstand for a moment. Had Jesus come down from that cross 
they still wouldn't have believed. Jesus said, even if someone rises from the dead, you won't believe. And moreover, Jesus had taught the disciples how to take up their cross. He didn't teach them how to come down or abandon their cross. He isn't going anywhere until he's finished. And so I want to say this, brothers and sisters. This is not an easy passage. Emotionally, psychologically, I mean, this is gruesome what's going on. And so if you came to church to feel good about yourself today... Wait till next week. <laughs> You're going to miss out. Um, actually, it gets worse next week. Um, but what do, we, what do we do here with this? God forbid we come and hear a story, hear a sermon about the cross, and do nothing. And so here are three responses that I think you need to see this morning from this ghastly account of Jesus being crucified. And so number one, see the utter wickedness of man. See the utter wickedness of man. Somebody said, Austin, this is always one of your takeaways. And I said, because it's always true. Do you see why the cross was necessary? Bob Coughlin says this, The cross ultimately points not to the greatness of our worth, but to the greatness of our sin. The cross sets us free from the misguided self-love to passionately love the one who redeemed us. This was necessary. There was no other way. If there be another way, let this cup pass from me. And the cup did not pass. There was no other way because our wickedness is bone deep. So see the utter wickedness of man. Man, be encouraged. See the scriptures being fulfilled. I mean, we've seen over and over again how Psalm 22 seems to be like the theological swimming pool that Jesus and the apostles are swimming in to make sense of the cross. I mean, it is by divine permission that every drop of blood is hitting the ground. None of this is outside of God's will. Every nail driven into him is being held together at a subatomic level by the one that's being crucified. That the scriptures may be fulfilled. I mean, there, there is a sense in which Jesus is a victim. But he is a willing victim who understands that this moment is a scripture-fulfilling, salvation-providing, hell-ransacking, pivotal moment in space-time history. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. He says this in Mark 10, and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And after three days he will rise again. Or Mark 14, 49, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. The scriptures are being accomplished here. And, and you know, thousands of people died by crucifixion. Dying by crucifixion does not give you the right to tell people how to live. But, before you're crucified saying, I'm going to be crucified... And it's going to happen like this. And after it happens like that, three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. That totally gives you the right to tell people how to live their life. So even in the death of Jesus, you see divine providence and the faithfulness of God on display. Sinclair Ferguson says, when you look at the cross, what do you see? 
You see God's awesome faithfulness. Nothing, not even the instinct to spare his own son, will turn him back from keeping his word. And the last response, man, see our salvation being accomplished. See our salvation being accomplished. Every other religion, every other self-help philosophy, every other worldview system, every other way of life says, do this and you will live. And yet, and yet you can't. The message is, pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. Distinctly American message. You got this. And all the while, we know that we are crippled and paralyzed under the weight of the power, the penalty, and the preponderance of sin. The world says God is at the top of the mountain, and you just got to go up. And different religions are all different ways to get up to the top of the mountain. So just get to stepping. Make the journey to the top, and you and God can be reunited. But beloved, how can I trek up that peak if I'm dead in sin? How can I journey on up to God if I can't even roll over in my own grave? The solution here has to be divine. Someone has to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need another. I cannot get to the top of that mountain. Every attempt has been futile. I need another. And another has shown up. For us and our salvation. Listen to Spurgeon here. See how red your guilt is. Mark the scarlet stain. If you were to wash your soul in the Atlantic Ocean, you might make red every wave that washes all its shores. And yet the crimson spots of your transgression would still remain. But plunge into the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And in an instant, you are whiter than snow. Every speck, spot, and stain of sin is gone, and gone forever. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And you know what happens when you plunge into that life-giving flood. You will lose all your guilty stains. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes would have eternal life and will not perish. And so brothers and sisters, if you have plunged into that flood, you are washed as white as snow. And you get to enjoy the very presence of the living God the creator of the universe, who says, come and drink, enjoy me. That's what we're here for. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. It ain't, about, it ain't about us. It's about him and enjoying him. But if you in the room are not a believer, let me beckon you. You cannot wash away these scarlet stains. They are bone deep, and they are almost permanent, save one who can do what you cannot do for yourself. And so if you're not a believer in the room and you've never trusted in Christ, I ask that when we sing, you pray. And you think about what Jesus Christ crucified has done for you. And you make your decision before it's too late. Believer in the room, let's rejoice.
that our salvation has been accomplished. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for your awesome faithfulness that you're willing to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And God, we pray as we respond, Lord, that we would worship you rightly and we would worship you realizing, man, you did it out of love. You did it out of desire to uphold your justice and your truth. Like you found a way to redeem people like me. And so, Lord, we praise you for such an awesome provision. And so, God, help us respond accordingly. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen.